Welcome to our continued look at the race for the White House with Real Clear Politics podcast, In the Arena. I'm correspondent Alexis Simmendinger. In the final 55 days of the election, our reporters and editors are stepping back each Thursday to dissect election developments and take a closer look at 2016 battlegrounds. This week, Real Clear's polling analyst David Byler will examine the House races with help from David Wasserman, the respected House elections editor and political analyst with the nonpartisan Cook Political Report. In our battleground segment, Rebecca Berg, national political correspondent, explains why North Carolinians are getting so much attention from the presidential nominees. In fact, Hillary Clinton, after three days of recuperation following a respiratory ailment, chose Greensboro, North Carolina as the place she wanted to resume campaigning this week. Rebecca interviews former North Carolina Senator Kay Hagan, a Democrat, and Rebecca Tippett, Director of Carolina Demography at the Carolina Population Center at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. We welcome your feedback at realclearpolitics.com. First up, you'll hear from David Byler, who takes a look at key house races with David Wasserman. This week, we have Dave Wasserman here with us to talk about the race for control of the house. And I'm glad we have Dave here to talk about it because he is one of the experts on this subject. He's the house editor and a political analyst at the highly respected nonpartisan Cook Political Report, and he's a blogger at 538. Dave is an expert on all things House of Representatives. He knows these districts inside and out, so he's exactly the right person to talk to. And it's also his birthday. Anyways, happy birthday, and thanks for coming on the show today, Dave. Well, thanks so much. I'm a big fan of you and your entire RCP team, and I have to say, what's scary is that I started this job when I was 22 at the Cook Report, and now I'm 32, and the candidates are younger than me, so I'm feeling <laughs> old. Yeah, yeah, I guess that'll, that'll happen to all of us eventually. We'll get into the first section here. Right now, we have 247 Republicans out of 435 members in the House, which means they have a pretty strong majority. So I have a two-part question. First, what are the chances the Democrats take back the House? And second, what sort of circumstances more broadly would Democrats need to win back the House? And what I'm really interested in on this second question is about sort of a breakdown of the moving parts. Uh, for example, how big of a national lead Clinton might need uh, if the necessary re candidate recruitment has happened, if Democrats should be tying Republicans to Trump or not. Um, yeah, so basically what I'm looking for is probability of a takeover of the House by Democrats and what the prerequisites for that might be in your mind. Well, the probability, I'd say, is about 10%, but it might be going down every day as we get closer to the election. There are a lot of separate questions in there, but I'll try and address each one individually quickly. You know, to me, Democrats were always going to win seats in 2016. They were always going to pick up House seats. Um, the question was just how many. And, you know, initially there was a lot of concern from Republicans that Trump would dampen Republican enthusiasm and turnout, that he could really put a lot more House seats in play. And we're less than two months from Election Day, and it's still not clear to me that his nomination is dragging down more House Republicans than were already vulnerable. Uh, Republicans in swing districts are avoiding Trump like the plague. Uh, by our count, 24% of House Republicans still haven't formally uh, endorsed him or said they're voting for him. And it's really up to Democrats to launch a ferocious ad campaign to link Republicans to the, the nominee, given that voters don't seem to be making that connection off the bat. We're seeing leads in a, a lot of places for Republican incumbents 
um, you know, by double digits in districts where Donald Trump is down uh, by high single digits or, or double digits. So uh, that's not a great omen for, for, for Democrats. Uh, I think Democrats have some structural problems. Uh, number one is in order to have a wave election, you really need to be running against an unpopular president in the White House, or at least a, a president that really rankles, you know, your, your base to turn out and vote. We saw that in 2006, benefiting Democrats. We saw it in 2010 and 2014, benefiting Republicans. And, you know, this is, this is a year when, when a lot of voters don't like Trump, but President Obama is also in the White House, and there are a lot of voters who want change. Uh, then you have, to, uh, you have to consider Democrats' geography problem as well. And you, you mentioned uh, the, the uh, idea that, uh, that Democrats are, are, are at a disadvantage um, thanks to kind of the, the lay of the land and, and the lack of competitive races out there. But, uh, but geographically speaking, you know, we, we only have 37 of 435 districts right now that we rate as competitive between the two parties. And the problem I see is that in a lot of, of districts that Democrats would need to get back in the House majority, it's not clear that Trump is particularly problematic. Uh, his, his drag on, on the Republican ticket doesn't seem to be being felt elsewhere. I would argue that Democrats, <laughs> uh, in order to, to get back into the House majority, might need a resettlement program of their voters who are really tightly clustered in, in urban districts and, and inner suburbs. And what we're seeing is, is Democrats' coalition this year really doubled down on that. They're, they're probably going to expand their margins in a lot of urban cores and a lot of college towns uh, where Trump is, is just, you know, so unpopular uh, that, that we could see just historic margins for Democrats. But that doesn't do House Democrats a, a lot of good. And then finally, I'd argue that Democrats had a, had a timing problem this cycle. Uh, and by the time Trump got the nomination in May, essentially wrapped it up, the filing deadlines for Congress had passed in 81% of districts. So it's not necessarily that you know, Democrats would have won these seats had, had uh, you know, they convinced good candidates to, to get in, in, into these races. You know, we just don't know. But there are a lot of seats where you know, Democrats are curious about what might happen or what the state of play might be had they had time to recruit a better candidate. And you know, Democrats' recruiting class this year, I'd say, is, is pretty good. Uh, the DCCC gets a lot of flack. For, uh, for for you know uh, candidates that uh, that aren't 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 perfect, but generally I think it's a good crop. But there are five to ten districts where they probably should have had someone, uh, at least you know, a warm body where they really don't. Really good stuff. Thanks. I know that was kind of a, a long question, so I appreciate you taking the time and uh, doing the details. And those la final points that you made, that there's, uh, I think you said 37 uh, competitive districts in your ratings. Uh, one thing that I think would be good for our readers is if you had to pick five or 10 districts that you think that every Real Clearest Politics reader should watch in 2016, uh, which ones do you think they'd be, and what do these districts look like? And what I'm sort of looking for here is kind of a demographic or cultural description of these places. Um, and some of our listeners probably know this, but there's a lot of diversity in house districts. You know, you have rural ones, you have urban ones. Um, some are mostly white, some are more diverse. So yeah, just what the battleground looks like, maybe five or 10 that stick out in your mind, and what they look like in terms of people. 
Well, let me start with two. I often call this House election the difference between Bangor, Maine, and Omaha, Nebraska. And you might be wondering, why would I pair those two places when they're thousands of miles away? Well, uh, the congressional district in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, is represented by a freshman Democrat named Brad Ashford, who's the first Democrat to be elected to the House from Nebraska since 1992. Uh, Bangor, Maine, is represented by a Republican freshman named Bruce Poliquin, who's the first Republican to be elected to the House from Maine since 1994. And these two districts happen to be the only two congressional districts that the presidential campaigns are individually targeting for electoral college votes because uh, Maine and Nebraska are the only two states that award their delegates on a congressional district basis, as you know. Uh, and the, these races happen, happen to be uh, a pair of toss-ups. Uh, they're uh, on the top of both parties' target lists uh, for the 2016 House, House battleground. And so the presidential race will really af af affect what happens down ballot. And what's, what's interesting to me is you know, Democrats have, have carried the electoral vote from Maine's 2nd District for a very long time. Republicans have, have carried the electoral vote from Nebraska, uh, its 2nd District, for a very long time, with the exception of 2008, when Obama just barely won that electoral vote. But uh, these districts could be on two divergent uh, or, or I should I should say con converging paths uh, that, uh, that that could cross in 2016 because you have in Omaha an electorate that is actually fairly diverse. It's got a, a, a large African American uh, community by Great Plains standards and a growing uh, Latino share. And you also have a white professional class in Omaha that uh, has has really uh, warmed to the Democrat. Uh, Brad Ashford. Uh, he's received the endorsements of the NFIB and of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and, and he has good relationships with the Omaha business community. And then in Maine, uh, you have kind of the cultural opposite going on. You've got a Republican uh, former Wall Street banker in Poliquin, who is an ally of Governor Paula Page, who's made a name for himself uh, for, for reasons that listeners will understand. Uh, and you have uh, Poliquin making inroads with uh, kind of francophone, blue-collar workers in northern Maine who have traditionally voted Democrat. So uh, you know, the question for me is, is could you have uh, these, these two seats that, uh, that continue to stay in these parties' hands because of the cultural shift that we see more broadly in this election? One thing that I've been asked about a couple times and that I think that you might have some uh, good insights on, is there sort of an equilibrium in house control because of how the districts are currently drawn, uh, how geography is, what the different coalitions look like? And in other words, uh, if you had a close presidential election or a couple close elections in a row, both sides generally recruited good candidates, had good fundraising, and you sort of got an equilibrium in the House, um, which party would be in control and by how much do you think? Well, in a truly neutral election, I'd say Republicans would keep control of the House, probably with a you know, 15 or 20 seat majority, not what they have now, which is a 30 seat majority, but, uh, but they would have an advantage. And, you know, in 2012, uh, Democrats combined, uh, if you added up all their votes cast for House, for 49% of votes, and Republicans combined for 48%. That's a pretty close 
national ballot when it comes to the House, and yet Republicans were able to uh, maintain control of the House by 17 seats. And so we could see Democrats win more congressional votes than Republicans this time. I'd argue uh, they, they might um, do even, even better than their share of the vote this time because there are even fewer blue dog Democrats in heavily Republican districts than there were uh, in, in the 2012 election. But, uh, but you're absolutely right that, uh, that, that we're seeing this, this landscape uh, narrow and, and the oscillations grow smaller. Very interesting. So um, another issue that sort of everyone in kind of the wonkish world of politics talks about uh, is gerrymandering. And there's a lot of uh, sort of controversy over it. And I'm thinking uh, I really wanted to know your thoughts on two different aspects of this. And just for our listeners, uh, gerrymandering is basically the practice where someone draws congressional district lines in a way that intentionally favors one party over the other. There's a lot of arguments about how much of this is, you know, intentional and uh, malicious on part of one party versus how much of it is just naturally how people are spread out and then you're trying to draw, you know, decent shapes and that's where they get put. Um, but I want your uh, opinion on two things. First, uh, to what extent do you think gerrymandering shapes uh, House results, the results of these elections? And second, if it actually does anything to how Congress runs? Does it have any sort of effect on governance? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And if you look at our ratings of congressional races at the Cook Report, you'll see that we currently rate 19 races as, uh, as toss-ups, excuse me, 18, and that five out of those, those 18 are from New York. And you might wonder, well, why, why is that? Why is New York so overrepresented in that count? Well, the courts drew the map there in 2012, not a partisan legislature. And so the districts were fairly competitive in upstate New York. Now, I would argue that the polarization that we see in the House is about two-thirds attributable to the residential sorting of voters and the fact that we just don't have uh, competitive regions uh, anymore in, in a lot of southern states and midwestern states like we used to. It's very polarized between the urban Democratic counties and the rural Republican counties, and you'd have to kind of go out of your way to gerrymander uh, competitive districts in a lot of places. Uh, and then I'd argue that a third of, of what we've seen in the polarization of the House is really attributable to the, the active partisan gerrymandering of uh, states by, uh, by partisan-controlled legislatures. And so, for example, in a state like Ohio, where you have a very, very competitive presidential election and a somewhat competitive Senate election, guess how many uh, competitive congressional races there are out of 16? There are zero. And I remember a reporter at a briefing asking uh, the chair of the NRCC, Greg Walden, about his party's prospects in Ohio. And the reporter was flabbergasted when Walden uh, told, told him that there were no competitive races in the state. And guess what? He was absolutely right. And it's because Republicans got to draw the map, got to draw 12 seats for themselves and four seats for Democrats. And so that contributes a lot to Republicans' natural, or, or Republicans, it adds on to Republicans' natural advantage in the House and gives them an additional artificial advantage to inflate uh, their, their margins. And um, just a couple more races that, I think merit some some shout outs here. Uh, if you're looking for a, a good bellwether on election night, 
uh, two races that I'll be watching early on on November 8th are Virginia's 10th district, which was essentially gerrymandered by the Republicans in Virginia prior to 2012 uh, to uh, protect that seat. Uh, and and, and uh, sure enough, uh, Barbara Comstock, a Republican who was an opposition researcher against the Clintons back in the 1990s for, for the Republican Party, was able to hold that seat in 2014 when the incumbent Frank Wolf retired. Uh, she's up for re-election uh, this year and sits in a district where Trump is very unpopular. It's the northern Virginia suburbs. But her saving grace could be that Republicans uh, drew that district out into the Shenandoah Valley. She does have very conservative counties in the district where Trump will do well to balance out the diversifying suburbs where, uh, where Trump is likely to do very poorly. And so I'm watching that district as kind of a, a house bellwether because Comstock should be able to survive, but it, it also could be very close if, if Trump is, is truly tanking nationally. Another race that I'll be watching early on is in New Jersey's 5th Congressional District. Uh, Republicans largely uh, got to, to, to keep the configuration of this district the way they wanted in 2012, but it did become a little bit more competitive in that redistricting. But the factor that is really making that race close is the incumbent, uh, Republican Scott Garrett, made some comments behind closed doors last year about uh, about his refusal to support gay Republican candidates that then became public and created a firestorm that cost him financial backing from a lot of banks that used to uh, bankroll his campaigns. He serves on the Financial Services Committee in the House. So the Democrat there, a former uh, Clinton speechwriter named Josh Gottheimer, uh, is, is uh, polling almost uh, in, in, within reach of, of, uh, of Garrett. Uh, we're seeing uh, some some margins on both sides that are that are single digits, uh, and and Garrett has typically won re-election by comfortable margins. This year is going to be closer, so I'll be watching those too. Uh, we all remember last year there was sort of a struggle between the more conservative uh, Freedom Caucus members in the House GOP uh, versus uh, a lot of the rest of the membership over who is going to replace. Uh, House Speaker John Boehner that ended in our current uh, Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan uh, taking that position. So suppose Donald Trump were to win on election day, what would that do in terms of that fight? Would that have any effect? Um, and just in general, how do you see sort of the conflict within the Republican Party between factions going in the future? Well, the nightmare scenario for the House Republican leadership and Paul Ryan would be more of what we've seen the last four years, essentially Republicans holding a House majority with Democrats in the White House. I think they'd, they'd either uh, prefer um, Republicans to win the White House and keep control of Congress. So obviously, that's their, that's their outcome. Uh, I think their second best outcome, though, might be losing everything. Uh, it would relieve them of the responsibility of having to raise the debt limit, uh, of having to pass government funding, uh, that would be up to Democrats were Nancy Pelosi to be back in charge, and it would allow Paul Ryan to have a future in the Republican Party uh, that includes the base, uh, that, that wants the whole pie. Because uh, there are two threats to, to his math in terms of passing legislation in 2017. The first is that Republicans' majority in the House is likely to be cut by 10 or 15 seats, almost in half. And that's kind of my, my current outlook as far as the, the seat shift in the House. 
And what that would do is essentially uh, make the Freedom Caucus more powerful. The Freedom Caucus includes 36 members, which exceeds the majority that Republicans currently have, but you know it could be three times as large as the majority that Republicans have in 2017, and that would really force Republican leaders in the House to reach across to perhaps Steny Hoyer and more moderate Democrats to find the votes to pass uh, some unpopular measures, uh, or at least measures that are unpopular with the Republican base. And then the second math problem for him is that there are 30 Republicans who are retiring or running for other office, and a number of them will be replaced by more conservative members. So, for example, John Boehner uh, left behind his seat uh, in, uh, in Ohio. A special election selected uh, uh, Warren Davidson, who was the favorite of the Club for Growth, kind of a Tea Party Republican likely to join the House Freedom Caucus. There are a few of those cases that complicate Ryan's uh, math going forward. And, you know, w- what's interesting to me, every, everyone watches the general elections and what happens in November, but the real action in House races really has moved to primaries. And that's part of the reason why, why Congress is so polarized. Uh, members uh, know that, uh, that they, the, easy way, the easiest way to get reelected is to just please the base of voters who shows up uh, to vote in primaries because the general election is usually preordained in, in such safe seats. So, uh, everyone has figured that out except the voters who are, are participating in those primaries at, at really, really low levels. And, uh, and a lot of these, these primaries are being very closely monitored and watched by the, the Republican leadership. I had a Republican uh, member of the leadership um, you know, text me multiple times the last couple of months uh, wanting to know what the results would be in certain safe house seats on primary night, because they really do care the identity and the political orientation of the next Republican member from that district. That's really interesting. Uh, and so I'm going to ask a related question and uh, ask a little bit about the Democrats. So uh, it's sort of an interesting kind of parallel that almost didn't happen. So you can see there was uh, a lot of sort of discord and uh, fighting and difficulty during the Republican primary. Um, And, you know, there was a a fair amount of division in the Democratic Party as well. Hillary Clinton uh, won the primary handily, uh, but Bernie Sanders had a stronger opposition than most expected and exposed a couple of, you could argue, maybe demographic or ideological divides. Yet, I don't see, at least maybe I'm not detecting it, maybe I'm watching the wrong things, I don't see those similar divisions necessarily come out as much and create as big of a problem within the Democratic House caucus. So am I missing something there or is there something that's happening where the Democrats are, the House Democrats, excuse me, are able to stay more unified than the House Republicans? Well, it's a great question, and the answer is that Democrats are divided. I don't think they're divided in a visceral way as Republicans, and I don't think it gets a lot of attention because, after all, Democrats are in the minority. So minority is typically united opposition against the tyranny of, of, of the majority, and, uh, and most of the attention is, is focused on, on the split within the, the ruling party. Back when Democrats were in control, uh, there, there was a divide between Democrats who supported the, the health care law and Democrats who either chickened out uh, in, in terms of, of, of supporting it uh, since it would be a political liability in their districts or, or were outright opposed 
to the legislation. We saw a larger than number, a larger than expected number of Democrats defect on the cap and trade bill, which, of course, ultimately never came to pass. So, uh, Democrats divide these days. Uh, I think exists over a number of different issues, including trade. Um, you're seeing a, a growing number of Democrats warm to the business community on trade. Um, they're, they're seeing in, increasing numbers of donations, particularly members of the New Democrat Coalition, uh, who, uh, who are, for the most part, pro-business and pro-trade Democrats. And then you have kind of the, the progressive uh, Bernie wing of the party uh, and, and are very kind of traditional, traditionally anti-trade. Uh, uh, and, and I think that divide may come out more into the open in the next few years. So suppose you, Dave Washman, were doing your exact same job, but you lived in the 1980s, uh, let's say a little over 30 years ago, heading into the 1984 presidential election, and you were looking at polls and house district maps and demographics and all of that, trying to see how it would shake out. Then suppose you, I don't know, go into a coma or decide to quit your job and travel the world for 30 years, and you come back to the U.S. in September of 2016, uh, you pull out a map of you know, current house races, uh, you start to look at what's happening and the battle for control. So if that were to happen, hypothetically, uh, what would surprise you and what wouldn't? And so a real quick second half to that question uh, is, suppose tomorrow you hit the lottery and you decide to quit your job and go live on a boat somewhere tropical for 20 years. And then you come back in 2036, and you know, first thing you do is you pull out a house map again. Uh, what trends would you be looking for, and what would you expect to see? <laughs> I love that you asked the second question as well, because I was going to raise that if you didn't. Uh, you know, 1984, I was born in 1984, but if I was looking at that uh, election uh, and, and then woke up one day and was looking at what we see now, um, you know, there would be a couple things that would would surprise me. Number one being that uh, the Voting Rights Act actually led to uh, more polarization in the House, and, and in fact, a very polarized uh, House, especially when it comes to Southern House seats. And uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, is, a, is a pillar of, of, uh, of, of elections, and Democrats certainly want to restore uh, Section 5 of, of the VRA, but uh, if you look at, the, at how the jurisprudence in the late 80s created a lot of minority-majority districts in the South and had the effect of taking Democratic voters away from surrounding districts, and that really came to haunt Democrats in 1994 and 2010, and essentially we have a variety of states in the South where Democrats are packed into one heavily minority district and are irrelevant in all the other districts. And so that, you know, I, I, I would be um, surprised by just how far the parties have, have moved apart, for sure. We simply don't have the, uh, the conservative Democrats in the House uh, overlapping with the more liberal and moderate Republicans. And, and that, that is alarming to me now, and it, it would alarm me if I woke up to it. Um, 20 or 30 years from now, I guess my question is, are we seeing uh, a third, third party or independent candidates beginning to break through? Because I look at the current logjam in Washington and ask 
uh, what could possibly break us out of this thing. And although you know, political scientists uh, talk about how, uh, the, uh, the obstacles to independents or third-party candidates becoming relevant, you look at the polling on party affiliation among voters 18 to 29 these days, and you see that basically young voters view the political parties as obsolete, as irrelevant, or even uh, you know, as even negatives uh, for, for our democracy. And I kind of wonder whether we will begin to see, uh, with, with the uh, advent of super PACs, uh, candidates who are well-funded decide to bypass the party primary system and run as their own brand, and, uh, and whether some of those candidates will become viable in future decades. Uh, because the way I see it, the base of each party, the primary electorate, is, is continuing to grow farther and farther to, to the extreme to the point where um, it's like a rubber, bra- rubber band pulling apart and something has to break. So uh, I, I would be curious whether uh, kind of a new issue constellation comes about that either causes the parties to, to rotate on a different axis and, and come together again. We've seen, kind of seen a sign curve of political polarization over the, the history of our country, or whether we see something that kind of jolts us out of the two-party system that we've come to know for the past 160 years. It's really interesting. Uh, thanks for being on the show, Dave. Thanks so much for your time. Well, hey, thanks for letting me nerd out with you for a while. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. And finally, Rebecca Berg discusses North Carolina's battleground trends with former Senator Kay Hagan and Carolina demography expert Rebecca Tippett. Now, now, first of all, let me just say, I like any excuse to come to North Carolina. I, I, I just like North Carolina. I, I love I love the I love the people in North Carolina. I used to when, when we used to campaign here, I used to say, even the people who aren't voting for me are nice. You know that's not true everywhere. So you got great people here, and then you got great food. North Carolina's got some food. In fact, I will find some place to stop and get some food before I head back to DC. I know y'all have recommendations. And no, I can't go to your house to get the food. Although I'm sure you're an excellent cook. And then you've got great basketball. You've got great basketball. We all know that. We all know that. But I'm not going to get in between all the Tar Heel and Wolfpack and, you know. Yeah, Blue Devils. I, see, I. Deacons, I, I'm not gonna get in. I'm not gonna get in all that. You just have great basketball in North Carolina. So I love an excuse to come to North Carolina. But I'm here for a simple reason. North Carolina might have great food and exciting basketball, but neither of those attractions drew President Obama there in June. The president was marking his first appearance for Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail. And it's no fluke that Clinton's campaign picked Charlotte, North Carolina for this high-profile, symbolic moment. I'm Rebecca Berg, and this week we'll take a look at the Tar Heel State. It was a key battleground in the 2008 presidential election, again in the 2012 race, and it is just as important and competitive in this campaign as in those two. 
The state is critical for Hillary Clinton, but it might be a must win for Donald Trump. No Republican has won the White House without North Carolina since Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1956. And in the last 10 elections, Democrats have only won North Carolina two times. But this state is no Republican stronghold, not anymore. As minority populations have grown and the state's urban centers have exploded, North Carolina has become increasingly competitive. Obviously, North Carolina is one of the top swing states in the country. Former Senator Kay Hagan, a North Carolina Democrat, has witnessed firsthand the fluid political landscape in the Tar Heel State. She won her seat in 2008 when Barack Obama became the first Democratic candidate for president to win the state since Jimmy Carter. His victory that year was propelled by the state's robust African-American population, which turned out in historic numbers to support him, buttressed by strong support from suburban white voters. But Obama lost North Carolina to Mitt Romney in 2012, even after Democrats hosted their convention in Charlotte. And in 2014, Hagan lost her Senate seat to a Republican, Tom Tillis. If the state has gradually trended in favor of Democrats, it remains solidly purple and fiercely competitive. It is great to be back in North Carolina, believe me. We had a fantastic victory in the primaries, and I love the people. And I have property here. I employ a lot of people in North Carolina. And I pay him a lot of money, I want to tell you that right now, so. For Donald Trump, North Carolina does not present some of the demographic challenges of other states. Latinos who favor Clinton make up just 2% of the state's 6.5 million registered voters. The Latino population in North Carolina is actually much larger, but many are not yet voters. Rebecca Tippett is director of Carolina Demography at the Carolina Population Center at UNC Chapel Hill. Every year from 2020 to 2030 is when we'll really see a significant increase in the Hispanic electorate in the state. So I think that's part of the reason why North Carolina is still such a, a toss-up state. And because these changes are working their way through the population, but they have not fully taken hold in the voting eligible or the electorate yet. Often we see the voting eligible population lags demographic shifts lag the broader population shifts. So that's why rural communities can still have significant impact because they have an older, like almost 100% voting eligible population. Rural areas are where Trump does well, and that's why Clinton was back in Charlotte again this month and likely will be a few more times before election day because turning out voters in the state's urban centers will be key to her victory. Everybody always says every election is important. I happen to believe that. I think it's one of the great gifts of our democracy that we have the opportunity to choose our leaders. And people, brave people, going back for so many years have fought to preserve that right. And that right is under attack right now. And it is under attack in North Carolina, of all places, a state that often set the standard for moving everybody into the future. And I admired that so much. Emphasis on education from literally preschool through college, emphasis on research, emphasis on job creation and innovation. And now, 
North Carolina, under the current governor and legislature, trying to restrict people's right to vote. Clinton was alluding to North Carolina's House Bill 2, which became law in March and has since drawn harsh backlash from corporations and individuals across the country. It would have prevented transgender men and women from using the bathroom of the gender they identify with, and it also blocked discrimination protections for sexual orientation. With Republican Governor Pat McCrory up for re-election, this issue could be a major driver of turnout among Democrats in North Carolina and a potential boon for Clinton. And relative to Trump, Clinton has the organization in place to take advantage. Her campaign has more than 30 offices in the state, while Trump has relied on the Republican National Committee's network rather than building his own. Here's Hagan again. I think one of the reasons he lost is the convention was in 2012. And then after the convention in Charlotte, uh, Obama pulled out of North Carolina, uh, which I think in hindsight um, had the campaign state in North Carolina, they probably could have done, they probably could have won North Carolina too. And I think what Hillary Clinton is now seeing is one, the importance of North Carolina and the electoral college votes that come with a swing state like North Carolina. For Real Clear Politics, I'm Rebecca Berg.